0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Dustin Marlin, Assistant Professor at the University of Massachusetts School of Law, and we will discuss his article, Unmasking the Right of Publicity. So welcome to the show, Dustin. Thanks for
1: having me, Brian.
0: Yeah, so I thought maybe we could start uh, for for listeners who might not be familiar with the right of publicity and how it works, at least from a kind of a legal doctrinal perspective. If you could say a little something about what the right of publicity is and sort of where it came from, what's the sort of backstory of the right of publicity?
1: Sure. uh, That's a good question. And I'm not sure that anyone really knows um, what the right of publicity is exactly. Uh, But it's one of two personality rights that we have, the other being privacy um laws vary state to state um, because there's no federal right of publicity. And I believe thirty-eight states have some version of the right of publicity in effect, either through statute or, or by common law. And it's generally agreed that the right of publicity um, is the right to control the commercial use and economic value of one's persona. Um, but that definition of persona tends to be fairly unclear. Uh, Some states limit it to name, others interpret it more broadly to to name or image or name, image, and likeness. Um, And the prevailing consensus today um, is that persona refers to harm to the objectified image of a person um, as represented through uh, monetary value. Um, And this is distinct from the psychic harm to feelings, emotions, and dignity protected under privacy law. Uh, Put another way, the right of publicity is currently a transferable property right, and one's external image um, is separate from privacy, which is rooted in the inner person. Um, Publicity law comes from the 1953 um, Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision, Halen Laboratories versus Topps Chewing Gum, or at least that was where um, it was first articulated by uh, Judge Jerome Frank. Okay.
0: Okay. So prior to this 1953 case, which sort of is the lodestar for kind of the term, right, of publicity as we use it today, before that happened, what was the what was the lay of the land? Like, what did it look like? Were people able to monetize their sort of personality in any way or was it just not an option at all?
1: Uh well well there was privacy law um but before then there there hasn't always been a right of publicity but but there's been a privacy right since the late 1800s um when that was popularized by um, Warren and Brandeis's influential law review article the right to privacy um but on the publicity side um as I mentioned Judge Jerome Frank was the first to articulate um a, a personality right. Um, that was public, that was transferable, that was property-based, and and that was distinct from the the harm to feelings and dignity um, protected by privacy. Um, And and, and as I mentioned, Halen Laboratories was a case um, decided by the Second Circuit, and there Judge Frank held that a baseball player uh, could license to a third-party chewing gum manufacturer the exclusive right to use his image on baseball cards. Um, no, I, I was going to say, Halen was was really a breach of contract case.
0: Mm, mm. Well, I, I want to talk about Halen in a little bit more detail because I think it's really the it's really central to your article, or rather, kind of Judge Frank's sort of ideas as expressed in Halen are really central to your article. But I was wondering if you could say a little something. And I know that you've said that sort of the, the right of publicity varies a lot from state to state. But if you could outline sort of like in a general, broadly speaking sort of way, what does it enable people to do? In other words, who can really claim a right to publicity and what do people tend to do with it?
1: Yeah. um, So the right of publicity is, as I mentioned, the right to the economic value of of one's persona. Um, And and this is something that has historically, um, stemming from um, Frank's interpretation of it, um, been one that's exclusively commercially focused and, and recovery under the right is typically limited to Economic harms, and and if you're uh, if you're a public figure who has an economic worth in in one's personality, then then this is probably the the right for you. Uh, But under this formulation, um, commercially focused, um, many public figures who suffer dignitary and emotional harms from non consensual use of their identities don't have recourse. It's also not something that private figures can typically invoke um, because their identities lack that commercial value, um, and so they're denied under the law um, their ability to bring publicity claims. Um, And and they can't bring privacy claims either um, since they've let their images um, enter the, the public sphere.
0: Okay, so imagine I was like, say, a celebrity of some kind or a public figure whose name or likeness had some kind of commercial value. How would I use the right of publicity in practice? In other words, what would I charge people for?
1: Um, Well, I I mean, I I think you could charge people for um, using your identity in an unauthorized manner. I mean, take, for example, um, the, the singer Tom Waits who didn't want his songs to be, um, used in, uh, commercials. You know, he could, um, invoke a cause of action, um, saying that I I don't want you to use my, uh, name. If, if the state allows it, I don't want you to use my image, my likeness, um, my, my songs, uh, he has—he's a really raspy voice, for example. So it, it was obvious. Um, in, in, in the commercial um, at, at hand, that uh, you know, this was really uh, something that uh, um, was a performance that that he was unauthorized. But he was also limited um, by the commercial um, ability uh, that, that that his image had this commercial value. Had it not had that commercial value, he most likely would have been without recourse. For example, if it was something that was purely reputational harm, if it was purely harm to his feelings and dignity, that would not have been enough um, under the, uh, the modern right of publicity.
0: Okay. So for contemporary scholars and maybe for policymakers as well, is there a consensus about, you know, why we have a right of publicity and what it's supposed to accomplish?
1: Uh, not really, actually. Uh, the, the right of publicity kind of lacks a coherent justification for its existence, um, as, as a purely commercial and intellectual property right. Um, most of the prevailing theories tend to focus on, on natural rights and economic incentives, um, that are imported from other branches of intellectual property as opposed to uh, privacy, which tends to focus more on um, personhood or, or autonomy-based um, theories. Um, you know, for example, economic incentives, um, like in copyright law, um, are, are sometimes used to try to justify the, the right of publicity, but many um, celebrities with commercially valuable identities in, engage in activities that they themselves uh, generate a significant amount of income Um, and the commercial value of their identities tends to be a a byproduct of their um, performance values. Um, Locke's labor theory also isn't something that um, tends to be um, all all that helpful in in the personality rights jurisprudence context, given that uh, the person who labors for a property right um, should prevail in, in the case of opposing claims there. Um, but it's not at all convincing that, that we should assign the value of the celebrity persona based on a natural rights theory um, when that persona tends to be created and influenced by society at large rather than the individual um, identity holder.
0: Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, then we've sort of got theories of justification related to other categories of what we call intellectual property things like copyright patent trademark and so on that you know seem to be relatively coherent or at least offer a story that you can either accept or reject and it sounds like those those theories don't track well onto So the sort of right of publicity as it exists or as it stands in the various states that provide such a right.
1: I think that's accurate, Brian.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so in your paper, what I thought was really interesting was the way you looked back at the Halen case, which is sort of like this enigma wrapped in a mystery because it doesn't really explain why it's doing what it's doing in a kind of satisfying, fulsome way. And you offer, I think, a really intriguing and rich theory about why Judge Frank would have reached the conclusions that, that he did. So I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about the background of Halen, sort of the context in which the court was approaching the problem that was before it, and sort of what happened.
1: Sure. So, I mean, the thing about Halen was um, it was really a breach of contract case. And and the facts involved um, Halen, a a chewing gum manufacturer, entering into a contract with um, a professional baseball player that provided Halen with the right to use that player's photographs to be sold with um, Halen's chewing gum during the time frame of the contract. Um, The defendant, Topps, um, was also a rival chewing gum manufacturer who deliberately induced the baseball player to contract with it to use the player's same photograph during the terms of Halen's contract. Uh, Obviously, Halen didn't like this and and tried to defend, and, and the defendant then tried to say, well, the contract was just a release of liability for using that photo. Um, Judge Frank disagreed, though, the Second Circuit disagreed, and, and Frank held that uh, the baseball player, or rather Halen, um, held a transferable licensing right from the player in the value of a commodified image or, or persona. And, and no court previously recognized the persona as this alienable economic consideration. Um, and, and this description of a property right in the personality, this outer personality was really in contrast to Warren and Brandeis's conception of privacy um, as this personal right protecting solitude, inner feelings and dignity um, in other words the right to be left alone um, so, so Publicity becomes this outer property right, privacy this inner psychic right. And, and so there was this division that Judge Frank created between the outer personality um, and, and the inner personality.
0: Yeah, and I as I understand it, this sort of reification or propertization of the personality as sort of an alienable, as an alienable property right that somebody can sell to someone else. Um, is still kind of pretty controversial in terms of thinking about sort of what the right of publicity is
1: and how it, it ought to work. A- am I right there? It, it is controversial and, and, and many scholars um, don't understand why um, publicity became bifurcated um, from from privacy, as, as Frank gave no real rationale for doing it um, beyond saying, well, you know, celebrities would be really, they wouldn't like that they were denied image revenues, um, you know, as a result of um, somebody else using their um, publicity. Uh, but, but what I find is, is that Frank's scholarly works were very much focused on this psychoanalytic understanding of the personality Um, He was very influenced by psychoanalysis, um, which Mm. divided the self into an outer public self, um, such as publicity, uh, as contrasted with an inner private self, uh, as invoked in in privacy. Uh, Frank was this leader in, in the American legal realist movement. Um, Legal realism being the the theory that that law derives um, from social interests and public policy um, rather than than just abstract rules. Um, And so judges should use social interests and public policy concerns when deciding cases. And and Frank's particular judicial philosophy um, tended to be heavily influenced by psychoanalytic thinkers like Sigmund Freud and, and Carl Jung. Um, and so his work came to be known as a psychoanalysis of certain legal positions um, or, or a, a jurisprudence of therapy. Um, so, so I guess I find that Frank, while he didn't provide much rationale in Halen for, for this creating this public-private dichotomy, he had given a tremendous amount of attention to it in, in his scholarly works.
0: Yeah, I was wondering maybe you could you could spend just a moment touching on some of the evidence that you present in the paper for Frank's interest in and um and sort of reaction to psychoanalytic thinking.
1: Yeah, so I mean he he frequently cited um, Freud and Jung and and Jean Piaget and I mean he was really very into um, the the sort of psychoanalytic um type uh thinking which which was big at the time i mean he was as i mentioned a leader in in this american legal realist movement he was known for several controversial articles and books like law in the modern mind uh which is considered today to be the foremost application of psychoanalysis to the law um, he wrote that after undergoing an extensive six-month psychoanalysis. Um, he also wrote other books around the time of Halin, um, such as Courts on Trial. Um, he, uh, you know, his he had the psychoanalytic jurisprudence, and, and he really, you know, for him, the psychoanalytic interplay uh, between the, these different parts of the personality. Uh, Freud's ego and id, Jung's um, persona and, and, and true self um, supported his legal realist interpretation of judging um, as, as a highly subjective and um, indeterminate activity. Um, he, he actually, you know, invoking um, psychoanalysis, he thought that the conventional image of the law um that it was objective and precise was this mask, um, this false face um, made to suit unconscious childish desires. Um, he was concerned with distinguishing between what he himself labeled a public-private dichotomy, um, internal and external, psychic and physical, mind and body, subjective and objective, public and private. And he even proposed that every federal judge should undergo psychoanalysis so as to rid their mind of of subjective biases. And and according to some accounts, he actually tried to push this on his judicial colleagues uh, much to their chagrin.
0: Yeah. Was he successful with that? Did he, did he manage to get them all on the analyst couch? I would highly doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I was wondering if maybe you could provide sort of like a potted explanation of the kind of Freudian and Jungian theories that you think Frank was drawing on. And then say a little something about how those theories may have inflected Frank's decision in Halen to sort of manufacture this new right out of whole cloth.
1: Sure. Sure. So it was Freud who initially came up with this theory of, of the divided self. I mean, at least in a mainstream Western sense, I mean, obviously it, it dates back much further than, than that, but I mean, Freud contrasted the, the, what he called the id as as the inner aspect of the psyche, uh, which serves as the source of instinctual impulses Um, as compared with the ego, um, which is the external-facing part of the psyche. Um, Other psychoanalytic thinkers, um, notably Carl Jung, who today is perhaps most famous for his theories of um, introversion and and extroversion, expanded on on Freud's partition of, of the self into this outer self as contrasted with an inner Um, or or, or true self. And and Jung actually called the outward face of the psyche um, the persona. Um, And he contrasted that with the inner attitude of of the person, um, which he called the shadow. Um, Jung used the term persona, um, which originally meant in in Latin theatrical mask, uh, to indicate the public self of the individual, the image that she presents to others, as contrasted with her feelings and interpretations of reality that are anchored in her private self. Um, So for Jung, the persona is how one appears to oneself in the world, but not what one is. A commodified part of the personality, um, concerned with the relation to objects in the material world, a two-dimensional reality of an individual's true nature, a shallow, brittle, conformist part of the personality that's purely outer and collective, um, a compromise between individual and society, um, a mask that separates um, someone from their their private life, a false self created by social pressures. Um, So my sense is that this psychoanalytic concept of a personality divided into these inner and outer subparts maps onto the conceptual division that Frank articulated between privacy law as protecting against this exclusively psychic harm to dignity and emotion um, that is a a true self, and, and publicity as protecting just the monetary, material, commodified value of one's persona um, that that is the false self, and that this divide could um, you know plausibly have been motivated by uh, Frank's following of psychoanalysis
0: yeah I mean from your description it sounds like there's sort of like an implicit normative judgment embedded in both to a lesser degree the Freudian but to a greater degree even it sounds like the kind of Jungian conception of the divided self. I wonder if you, do you think that, that that sort of normative element may have sort of encouraged Frank to look at the kind of public persona as being something alienable because it was in some sense sort of less like, like uh, normatively valuable
1: in some way. I I think so, Brian. And I I don't know whether, you know, Frank meant to do this or whether it was, I I guess, kind of, you know, sort of more like a meta psychoanalysis of of Frank himself, maybe it was sort of this unconscious thing. But he had this background in in the personality that that divided it. And I, I think... You know, when, when the right case came up, which was Halen, it, it may have been that, that he recognized this or he thought he recognized this division and that he could give this this new right to this other part of the personality that hadn't been legally theorized yet. That is the, the persona, the, the ego, um, this external facing um, commodified thing. And, and he also made it alienable, which I, I think if you think of... of Young's description as, as being this, you know, shallow, brittle, commodified thing, it, it seems much more alienable. And I think mm-hmm. it provided him some level of comfort um, in, right. in, in making this part of the personality that maybe wasn't the, the true self, something that could be transferred.
0: Yeah, right. It's almost like if it's not really all that valuable, you won't miss it so much if you sell it to somebody. That's a
1: great way of putting it.
0: <laughs> so so I I, want, I wonder Dustin I mean this sort of model that you're pointing to as sort of influencing or animating Frank's way of conceptualizing this dualism or dichotomy in in the person um is this something still viable today I mean to what extent is is kind of the modern doctrine of the right of publicity still a reflection uh, however darkly of of the ideas embedded in it from from Frank and should we think about it differently
1: yeah that's that's a good question um, the, the sort of subject object split that that Frank created um, Publicity and, and privacy. And, and I think maybe it, it may no longer be, be a great fit uh, psychoanalysis that is for purposes of, of personality rights jurisprudence. From a personality standpoint, um, the traditional psychoanalytic divided self um, has largely been repudiated given its emphasis on on the separation between mind and world inner and outer and and subject and and object uh you you mentioned this dualism um sort of uh metaphysical or cartesian dualism um inner reality under that view is considered to be subjective and, and psychic um, like privacy, while outer reality is objective material and extended into space, um, like publicity. Um, but, but in contrast, I mean, I think more modern personality development um, has recently been found to be um, intersubjective in, in nature. Um, intersubjectivity meaning we negotiate our relations with others on a daily basis rather than, than having, you know, some sort of autonomous private core or or true self at at our center. Um, Personality as a whole is is sort of this, this social construction I think is is the more modern um, view. Um, and, and, And under traditional psychoanalytic thought, um you know, people are kind of viewed as trying to, to hide. Um you see that with Young's shadow or dress themselves up. Um you, you see that with, with Young's description of the persona. Um but but modern personality theory, this sort of intersubjectivity, doesn't try to, to fit people into pre existing frameworks um like persona and shadow, it and ego true self and false self or or even public and private. These are rather um, metaphors um, that that can be helpful in in understanding people um, in some situations and and some of the time. Uh, But from a more practical standpoint, um, the public and private um, is is beginning to blur um, given new media, um, digital network technology, uh, social media, um, specifically, um, and this this psychoanalytic concept of of this inner private self and public false self may have been useful in Frank's time where celebrities and and private figures were, um, distinct and, and had differing legal needs from, you know, everyday private citizens. Uh, but now, you know, private people are, are living these the sort of public lives on personal public spaces, um, like Twitter, uh, for example. Uh, you have these communication spaces where um, you know people communicate and they're sharing things um, that that are important to them, um, and, and, and people need to the difference between privacy and publicity. Um, isn't quite so so clear, in in other words.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but wonder, based on your description, whether it doesn't suggest that maybe sort of conceptualizing these rights as being distinct from one another and thinking about public persona rights as being sort of uh, metaphysically different from privacy rights— Isn't perhaps the wrong way to go about it and kind of maybe part of the reason the theories seem so awkward is that, you know, they're not actually describing the kinds of, the kinds of protections of people's identities that we actually want to achieve.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good way of, of thinking about it, I think. I mean, there there are, of course, the classic right of publicity cases. I, I mentioned, you know, Tom Waits, where, where a celebrity, um, you know, has economic value in their personality, and, and what they're trying to do is is prevent uh, the, the loss of that economic value. But there have also been recent um, cases, um, class action litigations Um, involving Facebook and and LinkedIn, um, Fraley versus Facebook and and Perkins versus LinkedIn, where plaintiffs sued under um, the the right of publicity um, based on Facebook and LinkedIn's use of their names and and likenesses for purposes of advertising and endorsement. And and in those cases, plaintiffs had trouble um, recovering um, because they were private figures, their, their injuries were dignitary and, and reputation and feelings-based primarily rather than economic. Um, and, and also, they, they had been found have consented to um, a broad license of their personalities um, based on um, the terms of service of the social media and and so here they're kind of they can't bring a privacy claim because they've let their images enter into the public sphere, but they also can't bring a um, um a publicity claim because their their personalities don't have economic worth. So you see these cases kind of falling into the gap between um the the public and, and the private and, and maybe um, what, what that shows is, is these harsh distinctions between the public and private don't actually exist um, in, in the way that the, the psychoanalytic theory, uh, which may have influenced the right of publicity, um, led, led them uh, or, or um, led it to.
0: Okay. Okay. So in closing, Dustin, and this one's maybe a little abstract, so <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll see how it goes. But I mean, I'm wondering whether this kind of more dialectical approach to the relationship between private and public elements of a person's individuality pushes or ought to push our conception of the justification for the protection of those rights in a kind of economic and personal sense toward one of one or the other of the sort of paradigmatic theories of intellectual property or whether you think it suggests that we need some alternative theory entirely like some sort of tertium quid different way of thinking about the justification for uh, these kinds of protections
1: that's a really good question I'm not sure that we necessarily can analogize personality rights to a purely external theory um, of of intellectual property. And I'm also not sure that it, it's totally analogous to privacy either. I, I think that there may be some middle ground between the, the public and and the private. Um, and and I think that some scholars in in the privacy jurisprudence have conceptualized a a self that works for privacy. Um, Helen Nissenbaum, Julie Cohn, um, come to mind. Um, you know, the, these, are, these are scholars who uh, you know, talk about an, an embodied self. Um, they talk about the self as, as a social construction. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, if perhaps uh, what publicity law could do is, is mine the privacy law scholarship for, for some ideas relating to um, the the self and, and then come up with um, perhaps a, a a novel theory of publicity um, that that in some sense integrates both intellectual property concerns but but also privacy concerns and that that all still is is very abstract and, and half baked in my head
0: <laughs> Well Dustin it's been great talking to you about your paper
1: Likewise Brian, thanks so much for having me on.
0: Penny? Johnny Olson, where are you? Dear, uh, I- I'm stuck in the barrel of a cannon. A cannon? Well, you know our old friend Zapata the Great, the fellow who gets shot out of the cannon? Well, I stopped by the theater, and Zapata got me to try on his new cannon for size, and... But, Johnny, you said you'd be sure to pick up our holland bulbs. You know we've got to plant them right now. If we don't, we won't have any tulips or hyacinths next spring. But, Penny! Johnny, don't forget to pick up the holland bulbs.